y'all, and welcome to Folksy. For those of you who observe and celebrate, blessed Yule season. The trees here bear the weight of the winter snows, but the warmth of the season resides here by the fire. Um, before I introduce our episode's guest, I wanted to take a moment and to say thank you to all of our loyal listeners out there in the digital ether. Last month, we went from being a one-a-month podcast to now releasing two episodes a month because people have reached out wanting to either come on as guests or just talk about these wonderful movies that they love. I am so very tickled. <laughs> this podcast was an earwig stuck in my brain for many a year. And to have the support of a community just as enthusiastic about folk horror as myself, uh, well, it's it's just a lovely thing. Um, and a special thanks to you, our gentle guests, who have slid into my heart, my DMs, and my hoods to help me talk about these things I love so much. And um, and with that, oh my goodness, I am just so stoked. Look who has wandered in from the dark. It is it is the wonderful, multi-talented filmmaker and stuntman, Aaron Field. Hi, Aaron. Hello. How are you today? I am just peachy. I am so stoked that we're finally in cold season. Uh, <laughs> it's finally cold for a little while. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You bundle up by the fire, you put on an A24 movie, and you have a great evening. <laughs> Heck yes. That is exactly what this time of year is meant for. Before, you know, that's like in between, I guess, the Halloween movies and the Christmas slashers. Mm -hmm, <laughs> it's the A24 season. Absolutely. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Aaron, and I I'm going to gush here, but Aaron has prop for those of you who are unfamiliar with Aaron Field, he has probably one of the best cinematic eyes for violence that I have seen outside of my woods. And <laughs> as mentioned, don't laugh. It's true. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. You know, uh, when we think about, you know, things like combat and when we think about things like martial arts, we don't necessarily always put that thought into the way that it is shot. And that is such uh, an art form in its own right. And then you are also a very talented stuntman. How did you get into stunt work? Um, I have a martial arts background. So I did Taekwondo for 10 to 11 years of my life, teaching that kind of thing. And then as I got into film and it drew my attention away from martial arts when I was focusing in on like, I want to be a filmmaker. I want to move to L.A. I was like, oh, I got to leave that behind. And naturally Aww. getting into film and my love for martial arts, action movies, that kind of thing, they eventually cross back over. Uh, and I just stayed on that little intersection for as long as I could up till now. <laughs> Yay. Oh, that warms my heart. Cause yeah. yeah, you should never have to put art down to go make more art. Just absolutely put it all in a blender and have some mm -hmm. fun. Uh, <laughs> but that's so great. That's so interesting. I actually didn't know that you used to teach, but that makes sense considering that we met with you teaching me axe throwing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Aaron is also a friend of the pod, uh, <laughs> in that capacity. Um, and then Aaron, you actually were the one who was most excited about this film actually during act throwing. I think that we got to know each other because we were both like, we love this movie. Mm -hmm. Um, and today the film that we're going to be discussing for all of you out there in, in podcast land is the green Knight, uh, the a 24 film, the green Knight. uh, Aaron, before we begin, may I ask you, would you be so kind as to give an offering to my campfire? Oh, I would love to give an offering to the campfire. Yes, excellent. All right. Well, in that case, I always ask, end up asking like a personal question that makes people think, what is one of the scariest moments that you have encountered in your stunt career? It's a really 
fascinating question because as I dive into my brain <clears throat> of all the things that I've done that I'm like, oh, what's the what's something I've done like a a stunt or like a scene where I felt like my life in peril. Yeah. <laughs> uh, truthfully, I think if you ask any person who works in stunts, mm -hmm. our job is always to make sure that our actors are safe. Yeah. Um, so the most my heart has ever sank in my life was looking out for other performers. <laughs> um, I was on a set where we were shooting in these salt caves or these limestone caves and all the ground was like just pure dust and underneath the dust, there were rocks, there were like hard spots and oh. our main actress for this superhero action fight scene is an absolute badass of a woman and she is legally blind. Wow. Um, so we have this woman doing uh, handsprings and kicks and punches on the worst surface you have ever seen in your life, right? Yeah. You have one shot that we're doing where she's supposed to do this. She's supposed to run down this uh, uh, hallway and she sees me and she's supposed to arm bar me and flip me into the dirt. And all of a sudden, we just hear this wind howl through the caves. And it was getting late at night. And we just hear the faintest little, ah, like a fear from her. <laughs> and nobody knows where she is because it's super dark. We're supposed to do this lighting gag where the lights come up. And we turn the light up. And we just see her like on the ground. <laughs> and we're like, oh, no, what's going on? Because I'm responsible for her safety, right? So yeah. I'm like, oh, my God, what happened? And I'm trying to run up this this cave like hill incline my feet are slipping and we get to her and she goes oh it was just really cold so i i bundled up oh my god felt a chill <laughs> everything's all good we're like oh, okay great then we do the take she arm bars me i get a mouthful of limestone dust and then we move on next shot <laughs> oh my god ain't that just the way because <laughs> yeah it really does come down to that fear for for other people because um the way that i was always taught about stunt work is the notion of um it's the choreographed illusion of violence if you're actually committing violence against somebody else you're not doing your job no and so fair. like that is oh my god that is your personal heart attack you're right <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously. Like, I, if I get hurt on a stunt, and I have been hurt on things before, I am never. I, I don't think there's ever been a moment where I've really felt fear for my own safety. But it, the you'll never feel your heart drop more than you feel a little bit of contact when you're not supposed to. <laughs> oh yeah, you're like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh. <laughs> Oof, man, what a oh! I have I have grotesque chills in a way that I love. Thank you. That was that was a beautiful beautiful sacrifice um and, and with that let's dig into to the green knight um beautiful so yes <laughs> so uh for those of you who have not seen the green knight uh in a24 film on christmas day king arthur's headstrong nephew sir uh, gawain accepts the challenge of an unexpected visitor a green knight if one man can lay a blow on him the green knight will return the same blow one year hence uh, Sir Gawain decapitates the being only to have it retrieve its head and remind him of his promise. After a year of contemplation and being lauded as a hero, Sir Gawain sets forth on a quest to confront the Green Knight and face his own mortality. The film is written and directed by David Lowry. It stars Dev Patel, Alicia Vincander, Vincander? Vincander. Vincander, Joel Edgerton, Ralph Innocent, and I believe the pronunciation on this one, I worked very hard on it, is Barry Keoghan. 
That's the yeah. Irish. Uh, I believe he's been bumped up to starring on that list due to the recent flowers he's been receiving from all of his wonderful recent performances as well. Uh, with Arthur and Gwen also being portrayed by the incomparable Sean Harris. And we love her on this pod. We talk about her in all the A24 films, Kate Dickey as mm-hmm. Gwen. Um, if you have not seen The Green Knight, now is the time in our program to turn back. If you're feeling cocky and ready to roll some heads, do take a step closer to the fire. Yay! Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so King Arthur is an interesting figure in folklore <laughs> because kind of like Shakespeare and aliens, he's kind of constantly questioned whether or not he's real. <laughs> <laughs> what are your thoughts on this? Do you do you think that King Arthur was like a real guy? or or? I, I think that no matter what, uh, in in all the stories, like Arthurian legends and that kind of thing, they're guaranteed there was a King Arthur type figure. Uh, based on how many different stories there are where King Arthur is portrayed in so many different ways, I'm like, this is like six dudes. They're all friends, though. <laughs> I love that. This is six I'm sure they all dudes. get along, they're though. Definitely all friends. That's where the table came from. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's all the same dude sitting around one big circular table just having, oh, that's the next A24 movie. There you uh, go. <laughs> well, I, I couldn't agree with you more. There's so much lore. When I went to do my research, like a good little student for this film, it was mm-hmm. really impossible <laughs> to kind of like figure out what all of this kind of worked its way into. The, the closest that I could come up with is originally great britain uh mm-hmm. you know was invaded by the romans in like 55 bc and like later became britannia which is the way that we refer to i guess both england and wales during that time it's thought that the original legend uh, was welsh and parts of northern britain inhabited by uh, a very specific linguistic type of cult uh, celts which is not a cult it's just <laughs> celts Uh, Many of the romantic medieval histories were born of uh, kind of like what was going on in this area as a result of like resisting Saxon advancement. So the Saxons were more like people of the Germanic area descent uh, who were well known for vigorous piracy as the Roman presence declined in that area. Mm -hmm. So Arthurian lore has penetrated its way, like you even said, into pop culture storytelling in the form of musicals. Disney animation, you know, even films like Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Yep. You know, it's it's everywhere. It's absolutely everywhere. And at its heart, it's always considered this like strange romantic story, even though there's like one lady in the whole thing. I guess technically three, but it mm-hmm. depends on how we quantify Lady of the Lake and and uh Morgan Le Fay. Do you have a favorite Arthurian themed film? Uh, this is going to be the worst answer. And I know that for the demographic of your podcast, they're going to be like, oh, you know what? Screw this guy. (laughs) I was literally, as you were talking about, about to say, uh, soft interjection. Uh, I'm a King Arthur legend of the sword apologist. And I think that. No, I'm right there with you. Uh, I love love Guy Ritchie. And I think Charlie Hunnam, uh, kills it. He crushes. He absolutely crushes. Yeah, he's so good. I actually saw an early screening of that film. uh, And uh, for those of you kind of, you know, out there who are unfamiliar what it can be like to go to an early screening of something where they're kind of like testing the grounds 
oftentimes when you go to see these movies, they're unfinished. So things like the special effects won't be done, or there might be like 10 extra scenes that they're not really sure which one plays. And, you know, afterwards they pass out surveys to see like what people thought. So I saw an early screening of this film, which was just no effects, or not this film, of the Charlie Hunnam Legend of the Sword, which had no effects. So it was just the sword work, but it wasn't quite sped up yet, which was Mm -hmm. fascinating. And then it was nothing but Jude Law monologues. It was just him monologuing all over everything. Like, that's what I live for. So when I saw the final cut, I was like, it's less monologues than I would have preferred. Mm-hmm. But this movie is perfect. <laughs> no, straight up. It's so funny that you saw an early screening of King Arthur because I was going to mention to you uh, the first time I actually saw Green Knight was at an early screening. <laughs> no way. Uh, yeah, so I went to an early screening of Green Knight. Uh, there, it's it's actually by far far easier to see early screenings if you live in LA if you just know what to look for. Um, but A twenty four does them all the time in uh, the Burbank area. Um, it was pretty much the exact same film that most of you guys have seen in theaters or at home or uh, on your physical copies now. The only thing is when it ended, uh, they the film ended, credits rolled, and they cut it off mid-credits, and we filled out our review cards, and we did notes about it. I went and saw it again in theaters, and I was like, cool, it's over. This watch-through for this podcast, when I went back to re-watch the movie, is the first time I've ever seen that there's an end credit little bit uh, at the end of the film. <laughs> I had no clue that there's that little shot of the girl putting on the crown. I went, what is this? This is lovely. (laughs) I love that you've said this because I own this movie and I had no idea. Really? Okay. Yes. At the very end, credits are still rolling. Uh, A little girl walks up to the ground and uh, Gawain's crown is on the floor and she picks it up and she, she tries it on and that's it. I'm obsessed. I need to go back and immediately. Well, what an excuse to rewatch this movie. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Five seconds at the end, it's like, guess I gotta watch Green Knight again. Oh man, life is so tough. It's just the toughest. Well, you know, in kind of like the wake of like all of this like Arthurian themed stuff, I think that we should play a game. Tis almost Christmas after all. I love it. Um, so how do you feel about an Arthurian battle royale? There can be only one King of Camelot. Oh, okay? I feel fantastic about this. Yes. All right. So I have a list here. I'm going to pit various King Arthurs against each other, and then they will go into a bonus battle. And I want you to tell me who you think would win. If you don't know who all of these guys are, that's fine. I will give a little context because as Shakespeare once said, context is for kings. Yeah. (laughs) And that's what we are doing here. All right. So you ready? Yes. All right. Rad. Round one. Clive Owens, Artorius from the 2004 King Arthur versus Sean Connery's King Arthur from the first night. Okay, this this one is so biased. (laughs) Uh, Sean Connery's King Arthur all the way. Okay. 100%. And there's only one reason for it. And I I hate I hate to start it off on 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 surface level things. Right. But Sean Connery has mastered the old guy uh, parted haircut in that film, and I live for it. it it's I what I strive for. But him that. with a big old King Arthur sword just swinging down with his perfect hair that never comes uncoiffed, uh, Sean Connery all the way. You are the first person who's never brought up Richard Gere in regards to this argument, and I'm very proud of you. <laughs> 
I I love that. And I would have never thought of it that way because I always think of the 2004 King Arthur because to me, that's just a Hannibal prequel. Yes, that's true. <laughs> so, all right. So round one, winner, ding, ding, ding. Sean Connery's King Arthur in the first night for your bonus battle. And I think I know who's going to win this. Uh, Charlie Hunnam's King Arthur in Legend of the Sword. Oh, God, that sucks. Charlie Hunnam bodies Sean Connery. (laughs) Charlie Hunnam does Guy Ritchie speed ram straight through that poor man's body. (laughs) You're not wrong. Wow. No, that's accurate. Oh, dear. But yeah, that's ding, ding, ding. That's man down. I think you got that. So that was a pretty good first round. Good first round. All right. You ready for round two? Ready for round two. Let's get it. All right, let's get it. This one, we're getting a little more a little more cerebral, if you will. Okay. Uh, round two, Richard Harris in Camelot the Musical versus Graham Chapman in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Oh, geez. Okay. I grew up on Monty Python. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, truthfully, just by pure non-sequitur happenstance, somehow somehow we'd have to go in favor of monty python right I mean, who could taunt him to death i feel like making fun of a musical theater kid isn't hard no <laughs> that hey that's very fair <laughs> i would know i would know i'm friends yeah. with all of them so. exactly that's just it. we say this with love because film kids and theater kids go hand in hand uh but yeah i i understand what you're saying yeah the improv guy versus the musical guy i think i know who's gonna win at 100 excellent well i'm gonna throw you for a real lo- loop here because you ready for this bonus battle oh geez i'm ready all right we <laughs> your excitement is just so palpable uh all right so we've got graham chapman and monty yep. python on the holy grail and now entering the ring we have liam garrigan's arthur in transformers the last night oh dang it's so funny that you bring up Transformers last night. So, like, I'm not gonna bring up Transformers last night. Today. But you probably can. I understand. <laughs> but so tempted to. Um, I still think that if you plucked Graham Chapman out of uh, Holy Grail and put him in any other film, uh, somehow, not by skill, but just by <laughs> who they are and the world that they're from, they always win. There is, I... there's no way they don't. <laughs> I don't disagree. I could see him. I could see him taunting some robots to death. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. It's <laughs> really confusing up some circuits there. All right, well then, there we go. Graham Chapman's the winner of round two. That's <laughs> as he should be. <laughs> yes, as well he should be. Well, round three. I'm very excited about this one because it is impossible to tell an Arthur story without coming across children. Children mm-hmm. in the film. So for round three, we've got the kid in King Arthur's court versus Lil Arthur from the Sword and the Stone. So make oh. these children fight. <laughs> <laughs> I think, jeez, this one is this one's tricky because now we're I'm I'm thinking specifically on my childhood memories of how much I wanted to be just a sweet little blonde boy, uh, an animated sweet little blonde boy plucking that sword. <laughs> I think we all wanted to be that sweet little blonde boy. Plucking. Sorry, Actually, that's not true. I wanted to be the weird uh, uh, purple-haired gremlin woman. I still do. <laughs> is, that, is that Madame Mim? Yes. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. No, no, no. I, th- I think I do do have to lean lean on our, our sword and the stone, stone boy uh, because I distinctly remember as a child as well, because he, he has that uh, uh, 
it almost looks like he's wearing a blanket, right? Yeah. <laughs> I remember walking around in my little blanket with my little scarf watching that movie. I was like, it's me. I'm blonde. I'm not Korean. <laughs> amazing well see and i love that as well because like in my mind at least like little arthur uh little arthur excuse me uh versus kid because i can't remember his name kid if i recall like was able to save the day with a series of modern gadgets so it's mm-hmm. very like home alone but cheating yeah <laughs> whereas you know little arthur had to actually learn how to use that sword uh mm-hmm. and good for him all right so little arthur's the one who won that one he has a very special place in your heart. And so oh, yeah, gonna... I do I do have to say, uh, yeah. I think a kid in King Arthur's court gets a lot of flack. Uh, if you were born after the year 2000, I, I'll forgive you just because you don't. It probably isn't in your heart. But kid in King Arthur's court goes hard. It does go hard. It does go very, very hard. And I will agree with you. Anybody, we love a good little baseball boy as well. Absolutely. It's just fun. Well, I'm going to possibly upset your childhood sensibilities in favor of your teen sensibilities oh, no. here with this bonus battle. Okay. <laughs> All right. So we got little Arthur, little Arthur of your heart versus King Arthur from Shrek the Third. <sighs> See, that's the thing is I don't think I saw uh shrek the third until much later in my life (laughs) Um, okay that's so no because he he the the thing is even even though we have like a a nice like like on his way to maturity young man ready to throw down ready to fight we need him in a big blanket (laughs) and he's not in a big blanket you know considering that we're talking about the green knight i can't disagree with you (laughs) It's blanket boys. That's the that's the like who voices um that King Arthur and Shrek? Isn't it somebody important? <laughs> oh, what a good looking question. I have no idea. I'm gonna look at that. Look at somebody up. that is handsome and famous, and just for that, I don't want them. I will uh, you know what? I'm gonna call it now. I'm gonna Google it right quick, but I bet it's Hugh Grant. We're gonna find out. <laughs> if if it's Hugh Grant, then maybe. <laughs> that's fair. Hold on. Oh my god, no. Okay, I want you to think of the most punchable face that you could possibly make for this King Arthur. Oh, jeez. Imagine it. It's in your brain. Are you ready? Are you here for it? King Arthur from Shrek the Third is voiced by Justin Timberlake. <laughs> Not a chance. No, no way. No way. That's fair. That's fair. All right, then. Well, then that's that bonus battle. Maybe at a different point in time, maybe in the comments, we will do uh, all of our winners. So we will do yeah, <laughs> Charlie yeah, Hunnam. From Trolls is going to do anything to my boy in a blanket? Not a chance. Not a chance. No, that's wildly, wildly fair. <laughs> but but yes. All right. So you can come at us in the comments for this episode, or I'll put up a different post. Doesn't matter. I can do whatever I want. It's my woods. <laughs> should probably also talk about some of this movie at this point my god um so in in this movie we or in this movie in this forest we do love a movie that is also a book in the sense that it wants you to remember that it is a book and so we get this like lovely thing that the green knight does where it's broken into nine chapters with these mm-hmm. really beautiful title cards to kind of like introduce us to all of the different parts of this journey um so the first chapter if i recall is the christmas game which is what sets everything up and this is the scene that i know that that you absolutely love and that i think was probably one of the first things that you and i actually had talked about 
when we first started talking about this film many moons ago. Uh, so, so tell me, what are some of your favorite parts of the way that this is set up? Because this is kind of the only combat that we see in the film. Truly, um, I think <clears throat> on that on that note, this film has so much implied combat and implied glory because the whole theme of the film revolves around this idea of these people who are larger than life, right? And mm -hmm. all you see all these men sitting around this table and you are imprinting ideas of like who they are almost as you're watching the film. And anyone that's familiar with Arthurian legend, you can kind of pull out archetypes, you can pull out characters. And uh I, I, I remember hearing um uh, uh David Lowry talking about how n only a few characters are named in the film, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of like these people, their presence speaks for themselves. So when you come in this room at this round table and you see these people and you're picking out certain characters, you're like, I'm familiar with this. I'm familiar with this. Even when you uh, have like your like Merlin illusions and stuff like that. Right. Oh, yeah. Like never named, but you're like, oh, OK. And you get such a huge sense of scale in probably the most not the most, but one of the more claustrophobic parts of the film. Yeah, it's one of the few sets that's actually inside, and it is probably the smallest interior set. Absolutely. Uh, crazy. I had never thought of it that way. Cool. Yeah, oh, I love man. it. Man, that is, yeah, no, it's absolutely, absolutely, it's so striking. And that's, mm -hmm. I think, why they use so much of it in the trailer as well, is that they really wanted to convey the tone of what we were kind of getting into, which is that this is, this is it. Once you've kind of seen this, there's a rest of a fucking movie to kind of go with it, which is very daring, I think, in the sense of, you know, again, when we think of a King Arthur story, we're thinking we're either going to get a grail quest, we're either going to get a love story that mm -hmm. kind of sucks, <laughs> ultimately, if you play mm -hmm. it out to the end, um, and or we're getting a, an action movie. Yeah. And so to see all of that dwarfed in this small room immediately is so it, it, i mean what a way to start and then as the green knight himself is introduced when he walks in just the scale of that creature character you know you were talking about all the things that really get evoked in here in merlin in particular i love a good pagan yule fest that's kind of my weird hot jam <laughs> and so to really see the amount of detail that goes into to the natural kind of like elements of all of this now I know that, you know, Green Knight is kind of shown as like this amalgam of, of like nature and chivalry. Mm -hmm. um, you know, how much do these two really like mesh outside of Arthurian lore when it comes time for like your practices as a, as a, as a warrior? <laughs> I'm going to give you the title. It's too late. I did it. Oh, that's such a good question. I, Thanks. <laughs> I'll, I'll say that it, when, when we originally were talking about reviewing this movie and i was thinking of it okay from a stunt perspective i was never looking at this film in a way of like yeah let me break down how uh dev patel wielded his sword to chop off the green knight's head at the top of the film yeah um, it's very the thematics play so much into just even not not even just in stunts but as filmmakers or creators um and this whole idea of uh not just being like good at what you do but being honorable and being a good person while you do the things you do <laughs> yeah uh, absolutely. But, uh yeah i i think uh there's something really beautiful i think one of my favorite shots in the film uh which also uh, of course occurs in this first uh uh scene that we are speaking about right now is when the blade the axe is set on the floor and we see the greenery start to 
uh, grow around this axe yeah. that was placed on the ground, this weapon of violence, this behemoth of a weapon, by the way, one that is so unwieldy, yeah. uh, I couldn't imagine wanting to use it in a fight unless you were the stature of a giant tree man who is coming with a fun winter's game. Um, but, uh, <laughs> you have yes, this yeah. cold steel room that's lit with this like haunting like these haunting blues the lights all the torches have gone out there's no sense of natural air in the room and then all of a sudden you get your first little hint of green growing around the most behemoth tool of violence and it is beautiful right oh yeah Uh, the duality of that is one of my favorite visual illusions in the film and you see it so many other times like later on in the film when we get the flash to uh gawain uh passing away in the forest right oh my we god yeah this warrior who's passed and all the like nature retaking him and some who passed that body might think oh this was a great warrior who died but some may look a little further and go oh his hands are tied his legs are tied that's he a- all <laughs> hopefully those ropes will will be the first to kind of wash away they're never absolutely absolutely but oh. i think at the end of the day um uh everything returns to nature um and the things that we leave behind beyond nature are stories that we tell and the uh legacy that we leave behind i think there's a lot of um gawain trying to be more than dirt at the end of his life right um and the fear of just becoming dirt but i think of that often (laughs) that's fair i do as well again in a a famous blonde one said do you guys ever think about death (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and the answer is yes Mm -hmm. often uh and actually that leads to one of my favorite chapters that they actually do right after the christmas game which is a two quick year Mm -hmm. um we're just like plowing right through stuff because we can and it's fun uh this movie really is a film to be experienced visually i know i said Mm -hmm. before like if you haven't seen it you know go and and watch it i probably should have also said like no really go and watch it Mm -hmm. um but for those of you you know who are kind of like oh man like what did we what what are they referring just just go rewatch this movie just rewatch this movie this movie's great um but the year too quick is the one that always like jumps out in my brain space because in, in the christmas game one of my favorite lines ever uttered by a king arthur is when he just leans and goes remember it's just a game mm-hmm. because there is this sense of like you were talking about this sense of, of presence and gravitas with the notion of you don't have to go hard here this is a christmas game yeah. you know you don't have to be that guy who defeats this magical creature you know it, it, you don't have to you don't have to be this guy um, and of course, naturally being young, dumb and full of magic, <laughs> um, you know, he decides, of course, to do the worst thing humanly possible, leading to this year where he is both regarded as a hero, but also cannot live yeah. at all. Just waiting with this knowledge on his head that at the end of the year, none of this matters if he can't perform at the end of, of the year to end this game mm-hmm. to, you know and again i use words like this like perform and and all this kind of stuff they really do go out of their way to also show that this is an old medieval romantic story mm-hmm. in the sense of the old romantic stories were very much so used as pornography <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> absolutely 
yes, this was this was your mom's ratty paperback of of a, an old story. <laughs> I love that. Can we please get a ratty paperback Prince of the Green Knight? Yes. Can we get the 4K yes. release with the ratty paperback theming? Oh my god, yes, absolutely. Just Dev Patel dipping a uh, full man in green. <laughs> Just- absolutely. <laughs> Two axes make a heart above them. This is getting a little fan fiction but so This is good. This is a different podcast, but we'll, I like a different it. podcast, but you are correct. But yeah, I mean, like they, they really do make a point throughout this, you know, everything you mentioned the scene before of like, uh, of Gawain tied up um, by Barry Kugan who have once again said that incorrectly. Those of you on the podcast who are just tuning in for this episode to hear lovely Aaron, I have very difficult issues with pronunciation (laughs) especially with people's names um (laughs) but you know even in that scene what i particularly love about is after they bind his hands behind his back and they leave him in this like damsel position Mm -hmm. to kind of like screw around you know trying to figure out how he's oh no i've got to get out his pants have those like laces in them Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's like very like goth boy lestat like no we're just doing whatever the heck this is like they make a point to kind of costume him throughout you know with like moments where he's like bare chested and you know like they they really do especially at the beginning of this film put all of these shots in to kind of make him look like this damsel in distress as he's learning to become better uh, at being a knight which is so great uh, you know by the time we get to you know some of the the bigger elements of his quest like the Mm -hmm. meeting of saint winifred uh Mm -hmm. you know an exchange of well i guess exchange of winnings comes later all these beautiful titles that all kind of run into my head together um so like you've mentioned it's a morality tale about kind of putting yourself out there and learning how to live before you you die that's essentially what he's doing Mm -hmm. throughout the woods if you had like a favorite thing that gawain does to kind of like i'm gonna do this to live like what do you think it would be ah geez i i i think uh watching uh going through this journey just constantly be on the cusp of being what he wants to be and choosing actively to not be it is one of the most engaging and distressing (laughs) experiences um very uh, very tense i think there's a lot to be said about that chapter specifically even before he's he because he doesn't choose to really go on this journey that we see him on most of the film king arthur straight up says to him yeah you gotta go my guy like yeah. you gotta be real with you you knew the deal and if you if if you don't uh i'm never gonna look at you as a man yeah exactly <laughs> finger guns buddy have um, fun <laughs> straight up. but i think in that uh chapter uh seeing him in in the state that you described where he has this stature and he is treated like he's a hero in this in in this town um yet he knows that this is on the horizon there's still a part of him that obviously is like maybe not so he continues living his life in a way where it's where he had a year where he also could have done things that earned him the honor of truly being considered a knight yeah. a, a, and i related a lot to it's all too relevant because I think a lot about like when a lot of people when we were in pandemic or for people working in film when there was a strike, there's this waiting period of time where you're there are active things where you're like, oh, should I be doing things or do I even sh- should it be required of me to be doing things? Um, and for Gawain, he's in this weird like kind of limbo state of 
technically you you've achieved what you want to achieve but you know and i think he knows in his heart that he didn't do it yet right yeah uh but watching him choose to spend what could have been his last year but him internally denying that it will be just toiling away and returning to the brothel and getting drunk and spent like when they're still celebrating him in the bar and they're like he never leaves here standing up and he oh yeah he's awesome yeah no he's our party friend and it's like oh but those who party the hardest have the biggest you know depression (laughs) (laughs) Um, it's so interesting though when you're when he's not given the direction when he's not pushed to do the thing uh what his choices because he literally has gained the stature uh, in the town's eyes as an honorable knight um yeah. and he could use that time to fulfill that stature but he chooses to pretty much keep living the way that he was living before just with the perks of people in town like him and maybe let him drink for free yeah no i love that because honestly you know some of the things that we've talked about here in in on in past episodes of the podcast is how much we've seen this revival of folk horror kind of in the wake of the pandemic because mm-hmm. suddenly everybody was forced to kind of sit down slow down and remember what it was like before yeah. and <laughs> in, you're you know, sitting forced to confront yourself every day and i yeah. think that's something because i i think rewatching green knight uh being a little removed from that time uh, that's what it felt like sometimes is especially pandemic like you're like oh i could get fit i could be writing i could be creating i could be doing these things how do i hustle how do i make the most out of this situation but then some days you're like i'm just gonna sit here and r- reflect on myself and feel awful for a bit <laughs> that's probably what Gowan was feeling oh i love that you said only for like one day because like i personally went through phases where it was just like i'm gonna learn how to do this and i learned how to do it for like mm, let's say a month and then the month afterwards, I was like, why did I bother to do any of this? This yeah, month like, is going to be me, my blanket, the cat, yep. and <laughs> just my brain. And so I I had never actually thought about any of this that way. But I, I love it. That notion of you're waiting. It's hurry up and wait. Yeah. <laughs> which is oh, just the worst feeling in the absolute world, which is why, I, I mean, it's so great. Then we get that beautiful shot when the chapter turns to the journey out of the kids chasing after him mm-hmm. uh, and he's just crying. <laughs> like, just, so good. it's finally time. Oh my God. Like, you know, and again, the there's a sense of, of dread and relief of mm-hmm. returning to, you know, that, that moment and, you know, coming back out and, you know, again, we've, we've talked about it a little bit, but then the next chapter, a kindness is where we run into uh, Barry Keoghan on the on a deserted battlefield looking for his brother asking for a little bit of money for a little bit of help from a guy who's clearly rich <laughs> and, you know, and just you begin to start to see some of the issues of, of class that come with being treated like a knight when you're not necessarily really one, but also we love Gawain. He is wonderful. He is a Nepo baby though. Yeah. Uh, he is like the Nepo baby of Arthurian lore. <laughs> Um, very specifically, um, you know, related to King Arthur and heavily implied that he would be the one to take the crown Mm -hmm. um, upon Arthur's demise. And so this kid is not entirely without merit for being like, dude, I really, I got like a nickel for this. Go fuck yourself. (laughs) But, uh, you know, and, and again, it just kind of, 
it, it creates it, he begins to to leave that cocoon and kind of start to be forced to become a person <laughs> again so i love this i absolutely love this this notion of the of the covid comparison again i'm going to have to rewatch this movie again even though i just watched it <laughs> excuse to watch the green knight is a good excuse the nice thing is i i rewatched this film uh after many many years of telling uh my my partner hey we should we should watch this movie and she was like yes i really want to and we never got the time and then we had this podcast coming up i'm like i'm like hey i'm gonna do a green night podcast and she's like oh we gotta watch it. i'm like i'm gonna watch it so that way i have an excuse to watch it again with you yay oh that's perfect what a great way to to integrate getting to watch a movie over and over again yeah. and oh that's so so wonderful ah oh, i love that this podcast is inspiring people to see more stuff do it people. i, I think stuff. that's the that's the coolest thing about what you're doing is there's movies that people are going to inevitably skip not necessarily because they don't want to see it or it doesn't look interesting but just they don't have the time or they especially now they don't have the money they don't have the time uh and I find that there's a lot of times I just need to hear people talk passionately about a film and I go, okay, I have to see this, you know, oh, I understand completely. It's not about convincing someone that they would like something. It's about convincing someone to add something to their queue because Indeed. there is too much media out there. Now you can, you can throw a rock and find something different. Yep. And it's so hard to, I think sometimes convince ourselves that, um, we we are able to watch something without like being ready, you know, emotionally like ready for it because A24 kind of has this reputation that was kind of born of a lot of their folk horror films of being like the academic one. And oftentimes when I get people coming at the podcast, they're, you know, they're saying, oh, you know, like, oh, I don't know if I know enough or I don't know if I'm an expert enough for this kind of stuff. And that's kind of the beauty of folklore and kind of the beauty of folkloric practice, which is that. It's all about the journey. <laughs> I think there's a lot in Green Knight, especially. It's a good example of there's people, I think, who fear independent film mm -hmm. because they're scared that either A, it'll be too highbrow or B, they won't understand it, right? Yeah. But I think Green Knight is one of those movies where if you really wanted to look into it and upon my whatever rewatch this is, fifth, sixth, seventh, hundredth, uh, yeah. upon my rewatch, I'm learning new things every time. But in the first watch, where there was a lot of stuff that I looked over or missed, I still left with the theme, right? I yeah. still understood, like, okay, I get what's going on. It's the same thing, like, when you're reading texts that maybe you aren't too familiar with the verbiage, uh, a lot of Shakespeare, too. You yeah. might not understand what just happened for three lines, but the page comes through, right? Absolutely. Uh -oh. And I argue, my soft pitch for Green Knight to everybody that hasn't seen it is... I went with I, I and we've spoke about this before, Melinda. We're bo we both love superheroes and superhero yeah. movies and that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'm, I I will be the first to admit I I go to all of them. I enjoy the crowd experience in a theater. Green Knight is one of those movies that I think people were surprised that when we were in a theater, that first shot where it turns to uh, Merlin and only ever referenced as like a wizard, right? Never yeah. by name, and the lighting changes. Everybody in the audience went, oh, and understood. Because there's a certain cultural lexicon that we all draw from that we we know who that is. We know that when Arthur hands Gawain his sword, that's a big fucking deal, right? Yeah. The reaction in the theater was one of like not MCU proportion of, 
oh my god look an x-men just showed up right but yeah. when winifred pops up there's recognition it's like oh yeah, yeah. Wait, wait, wait wait a minute wait a minute i've heard of this somewhere yeah. <laughs> well, that is almost so- fun crowd experience of like we have this information and these stories and we've seen these stories even if you haven't seen a king arthur movie or read a king arthur piece of text it's an archetype that you recognize immediately. So there's recognition, there's excitement, and it's one of the only A24 movies where I got a crowd experience of people kind of going, oh, wow, and ex- audibly like reacting to the film in a way that almost felt like I was seeing like a blockbuster like temple movie. That is so cool because I had the exact opposite because I actually, because I had seen the movie uh, previously, mm-hmm. when I went to go see it, I couldn't get anybody to go see it with me because they were, again, it was like, oh, it was going to be very academic, blah, 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 blah. So I got like matinee tickets for a two o'clock performance on like a Thursday. And that's I was crazy. the only person in the IMAX theater. Yo, that's actually awesome. though. <laughs> yeah. Like that's just, it is it like I had an equally cool, but exact opposite experience to you with that. Because like, basically I kind of got this personal immersion into this world being blasted at me, you know, in just the most wonderful way, if you enjoy movies that way. True. Um, but again, it was, it, I had no audience reaction. It was all, it was just me and Dev Patel and the solitude between us. And it was great. <laughs> I, I am equal times. Uh, my heart aches that I wish you could have had such a wild experience that I did. But also, I'm so jealous that you got to share that screen time with giant Dev Patel in glorious IMAX staring back at you. Same days. I'm glad that we're on the same page because when you were telling that story, I was like, that sounds incredible, but also mine was great. So like, how do I, how do I even begin? (laughs) (laughs) How do I even just begin? Well, speaking of, you know, like, how do we compare ourselves? How do we do all this kind of stuff? You know, so much of this is a morality tale about like putting yourself out there and learning how to live, you know, before you die. And we've been kind of talking about like, okay, so, you know, he has these experiences of being like robbed in the woods. He has his first experience with a ghost uh, meeting uh, uh, St. Winifred and reuniting her with her head. Um, We have him out there, you know, eating mushrooms and seeing giants, which I love. Uh, (laughs) But we get to, to the exchange of winnings, which is when Gawain comes across this lord and lady in a house right outside of the the green chapel where he is supposed to meet the green knight on Christmas day to to exchange their their blows once more and we get this really interesting experience kind of outside we haven't we've talked a lot about Arthur we haven't really talked about some of the other surrounding characters uh in his life specifically uh his mistress uh, who is a whore, um, and his mother, who kind of, it's kind of alluded that she set all of this in motion. Like maybe her witchcraft is what, you know, summoned the the Green Knight to come and to take on Arthur, and instead her son has stepped in mm-hmm. instead. And so there's a tinge of regret in there, um, kind of coming to, you know, this moment of like the the few days before the end of your journey where he is suddenly met with wealth, food, luxury, all uh, uh, knowledge in the form of of books. We get to see him getting his portrait done on tintype, which is so cool. (laughs) Yes, that is very, very cool, which 
also the coolest contrast to my favorite uh, moment in the film, which is him getting his original portrait done, uh, oh, painted. Yes. Um, and it is probably, if you want to sum up what Green Knight is, I think you just watch that 10 seconds of the film where you see the most luxurious, heroic painting of this man who, to the town, slayed the Green Knight and brought honor to his name. And the camera flips around and it's just him in his normal day clothes, looking like he doesn't belong there, not sure how to pose while they're seeing this heroic photo of him. Staring out of a window that looks like, I will say that the medieval sets as well, they do a very good job with with the way that they portray Camelot as just a town. (laughs) You know, it's not, you know, what we would come to expect from, from British cinema, you know, even as we start to get into, you know, the Tudors and Elizabethan and, you know, all the kind of craziness that came post Renaissance and, and Elizabethan. And, you know, eventually we get back to, we talked about this in the, in the Vivage with Alex Amick, but the, uh, the notion of, when, you know, Puritanism was really starting to kind of take over in the Jacobian era, you know, this is very simple. So it's, you know, that portrait is like, you know, he's draped in like velvets and, and, you know, big tapestries and blah, 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 blah. And even in that window, it's just like him standing in front of some bricks with like a window with no glass. (laughs) It's it's so lovely because you get the duality. I, I always think about these two moments of literally the first one being, reflection of he's looking at a painting that he knows he doesn't live up to and then when we get to him getting his portrait uh done on the tintype uh him seeing himself truly 100 in considering truly what am i in this moment because it is not going to be embellished it is a true capture of what i am in this moment days Um, before my death yeah lovely yeah absolutely it's insane and then uh, we talk about some of our favorite little like scenelets of course yours is something like staggeringly beautiful and mine is something incredibly dumb but i love it mm-hmm. <laughs> i do not care um but uh you know during this particular chapter as well we also get this <laughs> this great moment where um i guess the lord of this i can't remember the official name in one of the translations of Green Knight that I've read, because mm-hmm. obviously, like anything else of this era, there's like 900 different versions. You pick the guy you like the best, and that's the most readable for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in one of these versions, you know, there's a there's talk of this story where as Gowan comes across, you know, this house in, you know, right before he hits the Green Chapel, it's actually a personification of the the Green Knight when he was human. And mm-hmm. so I kind of always love that kind of going into these notions. And then here we have his wife, the lady who has that great moment where they're talking, aren't you the famous Sir Gawain? Aren't you mm-hmm. here to do this? Aren't you the one who beheaded the green knight? And she just, she's sitting there with this dumb little um, uh, soft boiled egg with like something mm-hmm. sticking out of the top. And she just takes the spoon and she just whacks the whole thing's head off or the, the, the top of the egg off. And she's, Oh, aren't you the one who beheaded him? Just <laughs> um, And so like moments like that in this film as well, where you can really see life playing with him beyond just tragedy, you know, so much of, of what he experiences is, is like you mentioned kind of with COVID is the, the drudgery of having to do everything on the journey. You know, Mm -hmm. you can't get to the end. You can't just have that. Because in any other movie, you know, we would have spent an hour in that round table room and 20 minutes at the chapel. We wouldn't have told this 
this middle ground story. And this middle ground story is the one that is meant to be told for a reason. Uh, but even just like finding these little moments of, of how the journey itself plays with him mm -hmm. uh, in this house is, well, it does more than play with him in this house. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but, you know, it's just this great kind of like entrance into what would become, you know, the beheading at the green chapel, which is, mm -hmm. Not the final chapter of this movie, <laughs> surprisingly enough. Um, so I don't know about you, but as, as somebody who who grew up doing um, stage combat, a little bit of stunt work, obviously nowhere near to the extent that you have, uh, and actually was injured and can no longer do it. Mm -hmm. This chapter, the when you're just kind of facing down this notion of like, okay, I'm here. It's finally time. Am I going to do this? Can I do this? I, I'm one who went running. So how do you feel about this scene? I, so I think it's the most, uh, <laughs> it's interesting because you look at the arc of the story and where we should be as a character, right? And it's fascinating that spoilers for Green Knight, for anyone that was brave enough to get through to this point, even if you've read the poem, the thing that uh david lowry does that's different and changes the story is his moment of true uh the the moment of true character decision and growth doesn't even come until our last seconds of the film yeah um and he he knows the right answers by a certain point he knows what he should be doing and he's learning his lessons the hard way every single step of the way unfortunately oh, but yeah. In a lot of films, by this point in this act, he's showing up with new knowledge to face the final battle, right? Yeah. Uh, Gawain is walking in still in the same fucking mindset that he started with, which is the more horrifying part because you don't have faith that he's going to succeed in his mission in any way whatsoever. Uh, I love that. I love that because you just hit the nail on the head on because a lot of people always ask me, they're like, why do you, why are you talking about this movie on your podcast? Cause is it a folk horror movie? And the answer is yes. <laughs> it's dread. It's, it's all dread. There's no part of that. There's never a single point in this movie where you think Gawain is like making a decision that's going to help him somehow win or live. And you eventually realize by the time you get to that point in the film, Oh, it's not a film about whether or not he lives, right? No, it's, it's not a film about if he manages to trick the Green Knight or get out of it somehow, or he learns his lesson. The Green Knight says, ah, you learned your lesson. Good job. And gives him a little smooch on the cheek and sends him on his merry way. It's a <laughs> little, like, little slap on the bum as he goes back to the locker room. <laughs> it's a little slap. It's like, go get him, Tiger. <laughs> Oh my god. No, I mean you you were a hundred percent correct. Cause you know, even in that scene in, in the beheading at the Green Chapel, you can see he's waiting. Yeah. He's waiting for him to say, ah, ah, yep. ah, it's just a Christmas game, or you know, something along those lines. He's not ready to kind of face the consequence. Yeah. You know, because a lot of this is that notion of truth or consequence. And yeah, it's very much so about the life that you lived along the way, how much were you respectful? How much were you chivalrous yep. in the most traditional sense, not just in the be nice to ladies sense, um, yep. you know, it's, it's wild. And then actually that enters into probably what, at least in my experience, a lot of people had the most mixed feelings about, which is the way that this movie ends, uh, which is that it technically does not end at the, the green chapel. He says, I can't and he runs and mm -hmm. the final chapter is the voyage home 
Um, what what were your thoughts about the the ending of this film, the voyage leading into the final shots, shall we call it? I think watching uh, it in theaters was uh, once again just an experience of the most disheartening like you took it, it took all the breath out of your journey it's like you know he didn't really learn anything and you know that was the decision he was gonna make if given the opportunity and watching him go back and still reap the benefits of this fake victory everything is just this horrible sense of oh, he failed and you can't help but feel like it's only going to end in the worst possible fucking way for him. Oh, I love that. And and yeah, you'd see for, for me personally, again, sitting alone in a giant fucking theater, I was like, I think I would have done the same thing and I hate myself. Sure. <laughs> like, that's And I think that that's part of what we love about horror and what we love about these old folkloric stories is that we want to say that we've learned something from the people. A lot of these are more, especially the fairy tales are very moralistic. You know, when we eventually talk about some of the werewolf tales of Germany or, you know, Hansel and Gretel, some of the, the more traditional fairy tales that will eventually, you know, get really folded into folklore. Yeah. Uh, and that's the story that we get is him hating himself for the next 20, 30, 40, however many years, mm-hmm. um, which I love. <laughs> we, we end on, uh, he has, I think it's really smart. Um, the way that they do this sequence, not only in, you'd think like, oh, he's seeing his life from like, from that point on to the end of his life. It, I think it's really less about get us getting to the end of Gawain's life and be like, oh shoot, he saw he was still going to die. It's, we see him in two moments where he could remove the sash right now yeah. or then. And if he removes it, then he removes it in an act of cowardice. If he removes it now, he removes it in an act of honor, not even bravery, just honor. honor. Right. Yeah. And I think it's all about those two moments. It's like, when do I take this sash off and why am I doing it? And his decision right there, just seeing him, them cut from this man who has everything he thought he wanted taking off his sash in an act of cowardice and his head rolling on the floor to him ready to have his head roll on the floor, but with the opportunity to do what he should have been doing this whole movie, I think is lovely. I I, I love I love that we got that little diversion from the original poem. And I'm so glad that we spent the time on that rather than like in the original poem where he goes back and the knights absolve him, etc. Yeah. Um, I think it hammers that theme home. So I uh, I could not agree more because, you know, again, that that last little bit, you know, I love the way that you've put this with the the notion of you do this with honor or you do this with cowardice because what I love about seeing the the voyage home is him making all of the most what's the best way of putting it? Is seeing him make these these decisions that he makes in the wake of paranoia, in the wake mm-hmm. of you know, how do I keep my, what What was the point of my life if I can't keep my legacy going? And you see him hurting everyone around him yep. in order to do this. And so it really does in that little moment become that morality tale of mm-hmm. like, oh, for bitches like me who are like, oh, I would have totally run. Oh, oh yeah. This is why mm-hmm. I shouldn't fuck. up. <laughs> In many ways. Uh, of course, that's, I suppose, slightly more comedic leaning than your much more informed. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like, it's it's true. Like, it, it's a, there's a lot of people like I, I think almost everyone like we, we all fear death to an extent. And we see that moment. And we're like, yeah, of course. And we're like, OK, 
the movie's moving on. There's still he still will learn a lesson, right? But that version of the film or that version of the story that ends that way, the lesson is never learned. Um, so yeah. it pulls you back and it goes, okay, learn the lesson. He figures it out. He does a thing, and then we get the lovely little uh, Green Knight giving them the little. Uh, I'm a proud peepaw. Good job. Off with your yeah, head. exactly. Good boy. Well done. <laughs> I think uh, it's also a lovely opportunity to note one of my favorite visual illusions in the film, which is his head bowed and the Green Knight kind of over him, uh, looking yeah. down with a, a hand on his shoulder on his chin, and all these shots in the movies of stronger men looking down on him, lifting his chin up. <laughs> oh, yeah. Again, it goes right back to that damsel way that they keep shooting him. Absolutely. Like, we get Arthur in the beginning. We get the green eye at the end. We get uh, Joel Edgerton's character on the horse, one in his little smooch. Oh, his little smooch. Yeah, that's just it. Everybody is very drawn to this, this you know, delicate man and his delicate sensibilities who got himself into this delicate situation. Indeed. Um, and it involves, unfortunately, at the end, uh, well, I guess it involves your interpretation of how you mm-hmm. think it goes. Um, but yeah, it's just ultimately, ultimately, it's a, it's a really wonderful tale of again i don't know if it's morality i don't know if it's nature chivalry all of these things but it feels folkloric it feels like horror it feels like all of these things that i love but who am i i am merely a strange lady who's out here in the woods so what do you say you know does this film qualify as a folk horror film would you put it inside of a wicker man to sacrifice to the greater movie gods I truly think that the horrifying part of this film is that it kind of sits with you the thematics um, and it's so relatable and it I, I I'm not someone who dwells on uh death and finality much, but oh, you I'm watch this film and then you think about it. <laughs> you watch this film and you yeah. go, huh, what have what what have I done? What kind of what kind of person am I? Yeah. I love a good movie that makes you sit back and say, Well, I could be better. <laughs> nothing nothing wrong with that well you know and i guess me that means that it does kind of fit in there at least by my standards i would put it in the wicker man i don't know about you but i i agree wholeheartedly yeah we can also leave it nebulous for those of you at home who want to interpret whether or not it goes in the wicker man or not that uh, also y'all just great. gotta watch it oopsies Uh-oh. oh my god well aaron this has just been such such a treat it is just always so wonderful to talk movies with you where can people find you on social media so that they can follow all of your wonderful antics uh absolutely well first off thank you so much for having me uh, any chance i have to talk about this lovely movie i will always take it um but uh you can find me online i i post most of my stuff on like instagram um you can find me at not aaron field on there uh i like to talk about movies and then i'm also making movies all the time so if you want to see my stuff through there i work for a uh martial arts focused like film team called os films uh headed by uh noah flater who uh is a big uh, martial arts actor did a bunch of mocap for mortal Kombat stuff like that so we're doing fun stuff so if you want to see that check us out and then uh, if you want to hear us talk about movies again, who knows? Maybe we'll come back. We'll do uh, our Green Knight revisiting. Oh my God. Every Christmas, I'm going to make you come back and talk about this fucking movie. There's <laughs> at least a good six hours of content to talk more about this film. I mean, yeah, we barely scratched the surface because I was busy dicking around with Christmas games. But bless you for 
with it. We nicked the neck. We didn't take the head off. So for a future time. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Well, again, Aaron, thank you so much for finding your way into the woods. I got to go take care of some creatures of the night. I hear them screaming. Uh, But until next time, y'all stay folksy. Stay folksy. (laughs) 